It's the fourth Monday of the month, and that means only one thing. That means at 1230, we have Dr. <laughs> Jonathan Sanford uh, in studio with us, provost and professor of philosophy at the University of Dallas. And uh, he always uh, brings in or we, we connect with uh, one of the great professors over there at the University of Dallas. And today we're going to talk politics. But before you introduce a guest, i got to ask you, and Cicel, I know, is wondering as well, because the first thing she asked Dr. Malloy on Friday is, uh, did you get thrown in jail on Friday? And maybe you need to explain that to our listeners, I, what that exactly means. Yeah, no, I, I, I did not spend time in jail this past <laughs> Friday. I, I was fortunate to, to escape that. So at the University of Dallas, we have this tradition called Charity Week. And one of the high points of Charity Week is the jail on campus. And mm-hmm. uh, when I first arrived here in 2015 from Franciscan University, um, which does not have Charity Week, I, I was surprised at the the kind of festival. They're so uncharitable, aren't they? <laughs> no, they're, they're quite charitable. <laughs> but yeah, so the idea is, is to raise money. There's um, usually for a pro-life cause and then a second cause, um, and. Um, you pay to put somebody in jail, um, you pay to get out of jail, or you, you perform some, some, um, work. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon to have, for instance, Dr. Susan Hansen recite the Gettysburg Address, or, uh. or um, uh, Father Thomas Esposito to bring a guitar along and, and do some singing. Um, and that gets them out of jail. So yeah. it's it's a it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a good break and in, in a, a pretty rigorous time in the semester. Yeah, great, awesome. Well, come thanks for coming on. I love the topic as well. I don't know where you thought of this. I don't know where politics came into your mind, but uh, <laughs> Dr. Gladden Pappen is on the line with us. So why don't you take it away? Great. Uh, well, first let me just thank you so much for being on the on the call with us, Dr. Pappen. It's a real pleasure to great have to you be on here. the show. And yeah, how how exactly did politics get on my mind? I I really don't know, Dave. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, Dr. Pappen d- has been doing some remarkable work. Um, and before we we get into um, some of what he's been doing recently, including a um, a a nice run on Polish television, and I'd like to hear about that. I think our listeners would be interested. <laughs> but um, Dr. Pappen, could you tell us a little bit about your your approach to politics, your background, and 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 um, how you found yourself uh, contributing to the education we provide at the University of Dallas. Sure. Well, first of all, JJ, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's uh, it's great, and I always enjoy listening to 910 uh, when I'm driving around town. So my background is in uh, history and politics. I got my undergraduate degree in history and my Ph.D. in government, uh, both from Harvard University, uh, spent wonderful a wonderful four years at uh, Notre Dame after that, and then joined the faculty of the University of Dallas in 2017. My interest has always been in uh, what politics is for and what people are are looking for out of political life, um, and the terms in which they legitimize it or think of politics as legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, to put a point on that. You know, what, what is it that makes an election legitimate or what is it that makes a, a president legitimate, not only in a kind of technical sense, but in a more positive sense in the eyes of the country as a whole? Um, and related to that is the question of the role of the church and um, what the church is for and how what the church is, church is for relates to politics um, and maybe even not quite its role in making politics legitimate, although I uh, worked for Charlemagne in the year 800, getting anointed uh, anointed by the Pope. We don't we don't quite have that. Um, and uh, the role of the church is is a little bit uh, less clear now, but uh, that's the broad outlines. 
that's great. Thank you very much. So um, to this this uh, recent stint on on Polish television, I know you caught the attention of the Polish president with a an article that you had written. Um, I think it was just last week. But could you give us a little background on that, and, and then I'd like to to segue from that to to thinking about how these kinds of reflections really do make a a, a significant contribution to our political discourse. Sure, Poland and Hungary are maybe not always on the minds of uh, of Americans on on a daily basis, but they're both very important countries. Uh, Poland in particular is is near and dear to Catholics who grew up uh, during the benign rule of John Paul II over the church and and his wonderful moral service and witness. I was listening to um, former Vice President Joe Biden's town hall in uh, Philadelphia uh, about 10 days ago, and he was talking about the current administration's foreign policy, uh, lamenting events in Poland and Hungary and the rise of totalitarian regimes around the world. And it struck me, although I didn't quite call, didn't quite directly call them totalitarian regimes, seemed to kind of lump them together. Poland and Hungary have been um, reasserting their national identity and their religious and pro-family identity uh, over the last five to ten years. Uh, in important ways, Poland now has some of the most um, pro-life laws uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think that although Americans don't always, American, particularly American Catholics, don't always think about those countries politically, um, as we look around the world and, and look for places of, of moral witness, certainly no country is perfect. Um, but Poland and Hungary are are our are, are allies not only in a broad sense as part of NATO military military allies, um, but also allies for many social, moral, and and familial goods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So, so your your contribution in in um, reflecting on on how Biden had, as you put it, lumped together Poland and Hungary with um, a uh, a group that uh, to which they they truly don't belong. Um, and I, I think the the Polish president was just grateful that an American commentator had had caught this and had um, brought to the minds of um, the readers of that article the the recognition of of the good work being done in, in Poland. Um, what what happened with respect to the the television interviews and what what sort of contributions were you you providing there? Well, I have, uh, yeah, I did a, I did a couple of spots on, uh, on Polish television. One, uh, a longer 15 minute interview for their English, uh, for their English language programming, uh, describing the incident and, and talking about, uh, what that might portend for the foreign policy of a Biden administration, uh, versus a Trump administration, still trying to speak kind of as a, as a political analyst there, um, for the last several years, of course, the, the threat of, of Russian involvement and Russian pressure has has been uh, dangled over the Trump administration, but to the extent that um, American foreign policy analysts take that seriously, that should drive a closer alliance with uh, those NATO countries, particularly uh, on the Central and, and Eastern European side. So what it suggested to me was maybe that um, maybe that some of the more radical social and cultural uh, elements of a Biden administration's agenda could actually reshape uh, our foreign policy approach and or the the U.S.'s foreign policy approach 
Um, and I thought it was important to, to get that out there. Mm-hmm. I did a couple of other little interviews, which were just kind of commenting on and, and summarizing the state of the U.S. Uh, political races um, for audiences over there. But I think the big message uh, is, is that one, mm-hmm. that um, strate- strategic alliances are important. Uh, there's a cultural and social element, too. Um, but just as we see that, the more radical kind of uh, more radical cultural ideas becoming more common in certain parts of American life, I think we can expect that uh, to shape foreign policy as well. Great. Thank you. So I, I've got two big questions that I, I'd like to wrap the rest of our, our conversation around um, and, and sprinkle them with some smaller questions. But what, one is is uh, thinking about our, our party politics and, of course, the um, the coming week and what it portends. Um, the, the question there is, is what, what are the most important things for Catholics um, in particular, but people of faith in general, to be thinking about with respect to the coming election and, and what follows from it? So that's, that's one large question around which there are smaller questions. And, and the second is um, bracketing the, the upcoming elections and, and the, the focused attention given to, to party politics and, and backing up to a, a more um, long-term set of reflections. You know, what what are the the, uh, the major issues that Catholics and again um, other people of, of serious religious faith ought to be thinking about, particularly with respect to that notion of legitimacy that you were describing earlier. So, um, I, I just wanted to, to give those two questions in an outline um, to let you know where I, I uh, hope this conversation will go, particularly for the sake of our, our lay listeners um, who are um, um, part of this show. So um, you've, you've recently, uh, Dr. Pappen, been engaged in, in what is called war gaming, and um, I think our, our listeners might be interested in that. Um, what what is wargaming and what what is its its contribution to um, thinking about the, the coming elections and um, the fallout from them? Wargaming is uh, just as it sta- just as it sounds, uh, thinking about how events might unfold and ha- and having people play roles of actors within those events. Now. Some listeners may have may have heard of something called the Transition Integrity Project. Uh, there was it was in the news uh, earlier this fall. A group of people got together uh, and did a war game of several different scenarios and envisioned um, that uh, President Trump, even if he lost the uh, vote, lost the vote in the Electoral College, might still find try to find some way to hang on to power. This was at least the headline. The Claremont Institute, which is uh, based in California, and the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is based here in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, decided to approach this same question and got together uh, a group uh, of 30, 35 people who are interested in preserving the Constitution and seeing, uh, doing a kind of uh, stress test on whether the Constitution uh, can withstand a, a contested election scenario in the weeks to come. So we assumed uh, we tried to pick a kind of worst case scenario um, where an initial, at least a worst case scenario for political stability uh, in which an an initial Trump lead on election day is steadily eroded by mail-in ballot counting. Many states don't start counting their ballots until election day. Um, And even when, and as part of the scenario, um, 
there's a lot of difficulty in in a number of different states around counting these ballots, a lot of legal contests about about those ballots, um, and some riots uh, and public uh, chaos, foreign interfer- revelations of foreign interference, uh, actually in the Texas vote counting system specifically. And we wanted to see sort of whether the whether the Constitution uh, could get the job done and think through what that would look like in order to encourage uh, policymakers, uh, particularly those who who love the love the Constitution and and want to see a, a peaceful path path forward, uh, think about how that might unfold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how would you describe the the um, at least high level? results of your your analysis thus far does the constitution survive <laughs> well the constitution actually has a process uh for indecisive elections uh for a president to be elected they must win 50 percent plus one of mm-hmm. the seated members of the electoral college um we imagined that that might finally come down uh, to difficulty in in Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, even threw in a scenario where uh, a fire of unknown origin uh, ended up destroying uh, thousands of uncounted ballots, mostly from uh, Detroit. Uh, so we really tried to kind of tease up the situation as 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 dramatically as possible, or, or rather, the many of the other participants uh, contributed to this. Um, but we thought in the end that public pressure for a uh, proper counting of ballots and for sticking to the Constitution's path uh, would require that even if the vote uh, went to the House of Representatives, if, it, if the Electoral College turned out to be indecisive, uh, that it would have to follow the overall um, results in the state. So, you know, there are a lot of things that could happen um, in the situation of an indecisive election. We may not have one. We may have one. We've had one before, mm-hmm. um, most recently in 1876. And what we wanted to show was not that there's a kind of easy path for political resilience, um, but that in a in a situation of a an, of an indecisive election, all the participants uh, will have to um, kind of step up their game and and pay close attention to our constitutional and legal safeguards uh, in order to get the election through. So there's, um, in many ways, the the results of the war game were alarming, particularly uh, in in the role that social media might play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, alarming. um, I mean, the the social media, 1876, um, did not not have to struggle. The people in in that time did not have to struggle with the kind of social media, um, I don't know, um, mayhem, and I'm not sure how to how to describe it. But what what role do you see social media playing with respect to um, questions of legitimacy? Uh, because it seems as though um, nearly as as soon as uh, a policy matter is decided, there's an army of uh, naysayers who jump out on social media. It's it's hard to do anything. On a large uh, stage, without without nearly immediate pushback from social media, how has this transformed the way that we think about um, politics today? And um, do you do you see some good in this, and and not just um, that which is frightening or or um, 
uh, obstructive to uh, good political practice. Certainly, the social media platforms have allowed uh, many people, uh, Catholics included, to to find those like themselves. I think five or ten years ago, we we would have thought of social media primarily in this way, as a play, as a kind of free-for-all with some positives uh, and a lot of negatives. And uh, the Holy Father and his most recent encyclical has some some strong words of criticism for the uh, tendency to get consumed by social media. I think we're seeing something different now, uh, which is social media companies actually thinking of themselves as political actors mm-hmm. um, and starting to make political decisions. Uh, for example, suspending the accounts of major newspapers, like not that most recently of the New York Post, whose Twitter account is still suspended. Mm-hmm. Um, in this way, they they they're kind of they're they're taking on a new role uh, and one in which you know there's no easy uh, kind of path around it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're engaging in um, in more aggressive political interventions, uh, and in a way that that affects. Uh, the sense of legit- legitimacy within the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. They're starting to think of themselves uh, as guardians of, of the truth as they see it. Um, and unfortunately, I think that will, will play out in a, in a much more aggressive fashion mm-hmm. on their end. Do, do you see growing disaffection with politics amongst people of, of, of faith um, uh, to the point at which uh, we may find more and more um, serious-minded um, believers, Catholics and and uh, and others, who are um, going to be sitting out this election, maybe upcoming elections. And um, is is that a growing problem? Um, is it a problem, and is it a growing problem? I think it is. Um, I would say our moment has a kind of combination of of earnestness and cynicism in, in different parts of the country. Earnestness, which uh, shows itself in a lot of strange ways, maybe even as part of the new uh, woke ideologies, there's a kind of earnest commitment to um, a kind of quasi-religious ideal there. And then on the other side, uh, also also a kind of deep cynicism where, where power uh, continues to impose itself as with the social media companies, but doesn't doesn't admit that that's what it is, doesn't admit that it's power. Um, and that can be very frustrating. I think many Catholics feel that frustration uh, with the system. Part of that is also um, the way that, particularly we've seen this year, uh, neutral regulations like health regulations, for example, start to turn against the church. Uh, I was talking to a Carmelite sister over the weekend um, Who's uh, from a from the Carmelite uh, Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, and they fled the Mexican uh, Revolution and, and persecution during the Cristero War in the 1920s. Uh, and she was saying, you know, passed down from from memory of of some of those who had um, who had fled and and started the Carmel in Los Angeles, um, that that was that was how some of the persecution began. Catholic schools would be shut down because of some uh, minor infraction of a small regulation. You know, you didn't have the uh, the windows aren't correct. I'm sorry, you'll have to close the school. Mm-hmm. Well, we're starting to see that, and 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 that's very frustrating because we can see that it's a it's a power which is a, a real exercise of power targeting Catholics uh, in many cases, but which doesn't admit that that's what it's doing. Yeah. Um, 
the Holy Father in 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 his most recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti um, rejects disillusionment with politics. He has a very powerful section on that. He he says there's every reason to be re- uh, disillusioned with politics, uh, but it's all the more important for Catholics to confidently form uh, their views and and step forward into the public sphere, realizing as well that the Church itself is a is a real global community. Uh, of which they're always a part, not simply a, a part as an actor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a, a very good way to conclude. I'm getting the sign already from <laughs> from Dave. I feel like we're just getting started. I, I'd hope to talk about integralism and and some other matters um, around that second large question, but but it seems as though we're not going to get there. So perhaps that's an IOU for a, uh, a future conversation on the radio show, but but I, I'm really grateful for your time, Dr. Papp, and, and for the excellent work that you're doing, helping to inform the um, um, reflection upon um, our, our current political scene, as well as um, the work you're doing forming the, the minds um, and the characters of our students at the University of Dallas. It was a pleasure.